You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I haven't done a podcast in a, in a while, so I've been kind of brainstorming with some of the with some of the team about like directions to take the podcast. So since everybody has a podcast these days, I wanted to do something a little bit different because um, I feel every podcast just basically says all the same shit. So one of the things that I want to do is kind of cover some of the history. And so one thing with our programs is, and I've said this in a lot of posts recently, is our, pro- our programs are created by standing on the shoulders of giants. So looking back through the history of the sport itself, figuring out what the ones who showed high levels of success in the sport did and kind of where the next group took over and where they improved that and so on and so forth. And for us to just kind of take um, more current knowledge and kind of apply it to those older programs that have been being built for, I mean, now you're talking 50, 60 years. You know, starting from Westside Barbell, Culver City, to then Westside Barbell in Ohio. Um, obviously, my time with Shaco and the Russian system and going back through the Russian system and learning about uh, what I'm going to talk about today, like the Dynamo Club and learning about the Bulgarian method in weightlifting and what they did and their culture around the sport and, and kind of taking that and taking modern skill acquisition and applying it to our programs and just taking the same methods and with our fresh perspective, um, just kind of putting a little twist on it. So today I want to talk about the history of the Dynamo Club. So I think, you know, people hear Louis talk about this a lot. And I think they think the Dynamo Club is just a weightlifting team. But if anybody follows soccer that listens to this podcast, you'll know that there's a Dynamo Club soccer team. Um, And there's Dynamo Club for a lot of different sports. Um, So it's not just a weightlifting team. It was actually a Russian sports system. Um, And we're going to get into it. It's actually the oldest created system that I think exists on the planet. I think it was the first one of its kind. So the club, it was actually called a society. Um, It was created in 1923 in the Soviet Union. And it was kind of an association of many different sports clubs, um, but it was originally built for the armed forces and for select services like the KGB. So then after, you know, the wars and stuff ended and the 70s were kind of too, they were the golden age of sports science research. So we haven't learned more about like the physiological aspects of training since then. It's just kind of the same stuff being reprinted with different words. Um, Where the real progress has been made in terms of like understanding skill is more with like neuroscience because the technologies now allow us to kind of get snapshots of what's going on in the brain and we're starting to understand behavior a little bit more and stuff like that. So the mindset stuff, the mental training, the how skills are actually learned and acquired and stuff like that. That's where most of the progress has been made since then. But like I said, the Dynamo Club started in the in 1923, and it wasn't until the 1970s um, that it kind of turned into something a little bit different. So in 1971, 45 sports disciplines were sanctioned. 
and they created 6,000 sports facilities in 43 schools. So I've mentioned these schools before in the past. So basically the Russian system was set up in a way where you'd go to a school and one of these sports would be a subject. And we'll just, because of powerlifting, that's what I coach, that's what our team competes in. So they would go to this school, powerlifting was not one of them, weightlifting was. Um, it might have been later on, I'm not actually sure on that, but in the beginning powerlifting was not. Um, I'm pretty sure all of these sports were Olympic sports. Um, so if a sport wasn't in the Olympics, it wasn't included in any of these. But uh, basically, you go to one of these schools and you would have math, science, your typical subjects. But one of the subjects would be the sport. And we're just going to use powerlifting as an example, like I said, even though it wasn't part of the Dynamo Club. So you go to school, powerlifting would be the sport. So you start at a young age, they get a lot of GPP. So basically, when they first would go to the school, there would be gymnastics would basically be what's done in the very, very beginning. Right? I think from ages six to eight, all Russian kids took gymnastics because they believed that this kind of built the foundation of movement skills that you could build all future sports performance off of. So at a young age, when they're really developing in terms of like cognitively and by cognitively i mean to be able to control their bodies in space too like you're it's elite level athletes are just a different kind of genius than you know what we think of einstein it's just they're doing something different but their brain power is um still pretty um extraordinary right so beginners they would do a ton of gpp stuff they wouldn't even touch a barbell or competition lifts at all um, and basically what they would do is maybe use a PVC pipe and start learning like basic skills. And Shaco had told me the story at really young ages, the youth athletes would actually have competitions in front of um, Russian coaches. And the coaches would judge them based off of technique, not off of weight lifted. And another interesting part of this is for Russian coaches, they start with the young kids and they work up through the systems as well. So anybody who ends up as the national team coach of Russia would have started with the youth and then somebody would have determined that they were the best at what they were doing at that level. They move on to the next one. They move on to the next one, so on and so forth. So it's competitive even for the coaches. Like they have to work up through these levels. So for coaches, they have to be able to teach these lifts with PVC pipes to really young kids. And at the time, like I said, GPP work would make up the majority of what they were doing. So eventually, once they hit a certain age or, you know, some type of mile marker that they would have within these schools, um, they would start doing less GPP work in more sports specific work. So I'm going to use a Shaco template here because this is kind of how he um, did things. But the Russian system is it's built basically the same. He just has numbers and stuff that he put on these things. But it was all GPP work, very little sports specific work. Once they hit a certain mile marker and it tended to be around like 12, 13 years old, they'd start getting more sports specific work. The GPP work would start to cut out a little bit. And then over time, they get more and more specific. So when you get these high-frequency programs for the national team where they're doing a lot of competition lifts, high volumes of them, and very little GPP work, what people fail to understand is they did years and years and years worth of GPP work to build the base, and now they're just doing the bare minimum to maintain that type of um, the GPP work. 
because they're the elite of the elite at this point. Here in America, we take those programs and we just give it to somebody who's just starting out with powerlifting. So we're ignoring all of that GPP foundational work to go right to sports-specific training. Beginners don't need to do a ton of competition lifts to get better at the competition lifts. They need to be gradually... Um, brought up with GPP work and stuff. And of course, there needs to be more exposure. So we use a lot of max effort lifts. I'm not giving a beginner a cambered bar box squat with chains um, as a max effort lift. It might be a straight bar, wide stance box squat. Like it'll be much more simple. Um, but they don't need a ton of competition lift practice in the beginning. They need to build certain areas so that their technique gets better. You don't just get better at doing something by just doing the thing. You need to build up those weak areas that allow your technique to kind of self-organize into something that's going to be a shorter range of motion and something that's going to be a lot more efficient under heavier weights later on. And that's what allows you to have progress long term. So at least with our team, uh, I've had the benefit of being able to work with people for well over four years. The majority of my team has been with me for multiple, multiple years. And in order to develop that progress consistently over time, it's something that needs to be developed. You need to start them young. And by young, I mean when they start training with you to start building those areas so that you can build greater efficiency later on. Um, and I take a lot out of the Russian system. So I'm just going to use Shaco's thing here. So beginners would train about three days a week and there would be a approximately 700 lifts in a month. And this included all lifts, GPP work and the actual lifts and variations of the lifts themselves. So Shaco, 60% of the lifts would be variations, 20% would be comp lifts, and 20% would be GPP work. So something to keep in mind. Obviously those percentages are gonna change based off of the level of the lifter. But a beginner, typically three days a week, approximately 700 lifts per month. So the total comp lifts or their variations would be between 350 and 450. And this would be two to four months in duration. Um, and then after that point, you'd see an increase in the competition lifts and their variations from the 350 to 450 lifts in that month to 450 to 550 lifts. And average intensity stays low for technique. So once they move from that beginner to intermediate stage, and these terms aren't interchangeable with what we would consider beginners and intermediate. So maybe they do this, maybe they did the beginner stage for a year. Let's just throw that time period on it. Um, but it would be up to the coaches when they decide that it's appropriate for them to move up to the next level. So an intermediate lifter would typically get um, four days per week. So their competition lifts and variations of the competition lifts would increase to 600 to 750 lifts with an average intensity between 60 and 65%. The average intensity would be determined based off of the, um, the lifter's skill level, their technique, okay? So 60 to 65% for average intensity is a big swing. So it's very... Um, dependent upon the lifter themselves and the GPP would be reduced slightly. So that second stage of the beginner stage, they're doing 450 to 550 lifts. Now it's increased to 600 to 650. And then now the more advanced lifter. So typically if anybody's gonna sign up with Shaco, this is where I started even though I had no experience in the sport at all. I'd been lifting just a couple of months um, when I had started with Shaco. And so this, and so because of this, because this more advanced, and I'm using air quotations here, is a wide array of skill level within the sport. This is why you're going to have such a wide spectrum of um, lifts, but it would be between 800 and 1300 lifts per month. 
and this would be comp lifts and their variation. So remember, 60% of all lifts done in a month with Shaco were variations. 20% were comp lifts, 20% was GPP. But that 800 to 1300 is just the comp lifts and their variations. So 60% of that work is still variations. Um, and this would be at an average intensity of 69% plus or minus 2%. All right, so anywhere between 67 and 71%, depending on whether it's a prep block, a comp block, and depending upon the um, technique of the lifter. Um, I'm not going to get into the actual like programming stuff that um, that he did on top of that, because there's maybe I'll do that in a, another. Um, in another uh, chapter here that I do, another podcast. But um, it just gives you a good example of how the work was waved up over the years. So the Russian classification chart that they had, you can just Google it. Basically, like you could get to a certain level and if you got, if they didn't feel you had the skill set to continue to advance, you'd be given a certificate and you would leave one of these schools. Okay, so like not everybody makes it to a master of sport in international competition. So the ones you do see at the top, the cream rises to the top. So maybe they didn't have the right mindset. Maybe they got injured too often and, you know, and there's genetic predispositions to injury and stuff like that. Maybe they just didn't have it, you know, so they would be asked to leave these schools, given a certificate and asked to leave these schools. So you do need to keep in mind that the ones that did make it to the top were the elite of the elite. Okay, it did weed out quite a bit. Um, okay, so let's talk about the Olympic weightlifting group, the Dynamo Club. This is the group that Louis talks about a lot. Okay, so this was the Soviet Olympic weightlifting team. Again, this was in the early 70s. I think, you know, 1972 it tended to be when the weightlifting team started to like really start paying attention to what it was doing, keeping track of those things, and uh, really trying to kind of push their limits. So what they did is they had 20 to 45 SPP, so specific preparation exercises, um, and their their variations, right? So this could be the comp lift, so the clean and jerk, the snatch, and all the variations. So there were 20 to 45 lifts that they used, and there were 70, 70 lifters in this group. So these are the things that I, I found really interesting about the Dynamo Club. Um, in terms of their programming that I actually use the exact same way. And I use them the exact same way and I'm just paying attention. I'm at the point of just paying attention now and seeing how things work out. And then we'll make slight adjustments as we need to make adjustments. So what they did is they waived the variation systematically so that one built off the last. So it started with less specific exercises, like more variation, that then would systematically taper up into the actual comp lifts. So for us, our earlier phases of max effort work and even our rep work are gonna have greater variation in them. So a phase one exercise might be a camera bar box squat with chains, right? So we're using a different bar, we're using accommodating resistance, we're using a box squat, which is a completely different squat than a comp squat. Um, we're putting all this variation in there. And then as we systematically increase it over time, we're going to go through phase two and it's going to be a little bit more specific than it was. Maybe now we're using a straight bar with accommodating resistance, maybe still a box. Maybe we're using a straight bar and 
pins in a different stance or maybe we're still using a specialty bar whatever right but maybe we're doing a specialty bar in just the squat or you know whatever it's going to taper up i did a whole podcast on max effort lift classifications a couple months ago if you want to go back and actually um, listen to some examples of that but it ends in phase three with the actual competition lifts and then a quick 10-day taper and then the competition. So it systematically goes from more variation to greater specificity over the course. So they did this. Of course, it's an Olympic training um, program. So there's a multi-year piece to it. And they actually, the Dynamo Club, interesting, even though Louis talks about them a lot, they actually used what was called the conjugate sequential system so it was the first conjugate system but it was actually set up more in blocks so because they probably had a a longer time period in between major competitions or something i'm not sure why they actually did this um, or they found maybe it worked better uh, for their lifters under these circumstances but they they would break it up into blocks so you wouldn't train max effort and dynamic effort in a week like Westside does you would have a block of you know maybe higher volume stuff and then you know prep period comp period type of um type of block but these blocks would start with more variation and become more specific over time this other part too i found really interesting and this is kind of how i dictate our training as well is the frequencies that each exercise appeared it was based off of the coach's assessment of the lifter and like i said before the it would still even though the lifter might have certain needs you would still get more specific as the competition drew more near um, but it was still based off of the needs assessment of the lifter. So their variations, they would look at a lifter and be like, here are your weaknesses. These are the variations we're going to use for for you. And then it made me think about like my time with Shaco and the variations that he would choose. So Shaco, what he would do is he broke up the lift into a number of different parts, each one that required its own kind of nervous system movement. It could be the unrack then it could be the walkout, you know, the unrack and walkout could be one, and then the eccentric is one, the amortization phase of the bottom, so the transition from going down to up, it's very brief, but still, and then the coming up part, you know, all of those, you'd break it down and be like, okay, here's the part of the lift I wanna work on, these are the variations that are gonna help target that area, okay? So we do the same thing with the technique. So maybe somebody, as they're coming out of the hole, the knees drive forward really hard. Okay, we need to we need to address those hips. So this might be parallel box squats. And we might use a camered bar for that because it's going to target the posterior chain a little bit more. And we might use accommodating resistance because they got that sticking, that sticking point, right? As the knees are driving forward, they're losing acceleration. Right, so we're gonna use accommodating resistance to really build up the ability to drive through heavier weights longer. So we're gonna look at those weaknesses and we're gonna target them specifically with our variations. And we're gonna use max effort and rep work to do these things. Um, What I have found is you can't correct technique by just using lighter weights. You can't 
correct technique by just using heavier weights and you cannot correct technique by just using the lifts themselves. It's the combination of all the GPP work targeting the weak areas, the max effort work targeting the absolute strength and the inter and intramuscular coordination that goes with moving heavier weights, which also take longer. So having the ability to push weight longer is it is the fucking sport at the end of the day but at the same time you you do that you get too slow so you don't have the ability to hit that peak force fast enough so you need to have other lifts in there where you're moving faster so all of those things need to be put together at angles that we need to work on that need to hit those that need to target those weak areas so there's an art to putting all of this stuff together and where the Dynamo Club put it together systematically, it just makes a lot of sense to me. So I wave our frequencies. Phase one is just an upper lower split. Phase two, I start bringing in higher frequency at the end of the week. So day one is still our max effort squat day, and it rotates weekly. So we'll do reps on off days too. And I've explained this in other podcasts. And then week three, and we keep a variation in for an entire block, which is exactly what the Dynamo Club did too, is they would use these variations in blocks of training. So you could repeat the same ones, but they found you can't just repeat it heavy all of the time. You have to fluctuate load variability is extremely important. So week one, we max effort on a squat and on a bench. Week two, we take a percentage, usually around 70% for a five by five or something like that, because that'd be a medium volume day for us. And we'll repeat that variation. Then week three, we try to beat our week one. So we start developing the psychological components of competition at the same time as trying to get better in a short amount of time. It just builds this urgency in this. Let's beat it by five pounds. Let's get better. Let's get better. Let's get better. So in phase one, because a lot of older lifters said that they wished they deadlifted less, we do not do any max effort lifts. And phases last four to eight weeks on average, usually eight weeks more often than not, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. So they'll do all squat and deadlift volume day three and then a bench day and a lot of accessories day four. So our earlier phase even has more GPP in it, just like the Dynamo Club, those schools were set up, just like that Shaco beginner intermediate advanced thing that I was talking about before. And then our phase two, I increase the frequency. So days one and two stay the same, basically. We'll change the variation, of course. And then day three, they'll get bench rep work. And then it'll be deadlift max effort work that then on week two rotates to percentage rep work. And then week three, just like it is on day one and day two, it's another max effort lift. And then our day four becomes squat and deadlift volume. So we can take the same loads and now I'm pushing them later in the week using some of the higher frequency stuff. And one, it just... It creates more work, more sports-specific work. So just like the Dynamo Club got general to more specific, we're doing the same thing here. But we're building a really strong work base at the same time because phase three is going to be our competition phase where now we're not rotating day one and day two max efforts. So the squat and the bench day one, day two are a max effort every single week in phase three. The exercise will rotate just like Westside does. Every week we, we do a new exercise. But here you'll see bands kind of drop out because bands are actually harder to recover from um, because of the overspeed eccentric. So even though the load might decrease in the hole, the force is still extremely high. Um, and with that high force in the hole, it's just harder to recover from. Chains are basically straight weight that deload 
at the bottom, but you still get the accommodating resistance on the way up. So they still have to drive through the entire range of motion. So you don't have a deceleration phase like you would with straight weight. So we'll use chains here for one, and we'll typically not use a ton of chain weight either. So we're getting more bar weight, so it's more specific. But those exercises will rotate every single week, like I said, just like Westside does. The deadlift still is still going every other week, and I tend to keep um, a variation in there, so we won't rotate it as much. But I taper the deadlift a lot sooner. So if we're coming up to a competition, instead of having a max effort deadlift two weeks before they test, they'll take 90% for like maybe a three by one and it could still be a deficit or something like that and they'll use that percentage will be based off of that variation and then they might take 85 percent or something like that like it'll slowly taper down and then we'll have the test so they'll get one less max effort deadlift like we just don't pull as heavy as often as we do the squat can build the deadlift it's the same fucking muscles like a ssb wide stance box squat is a sumo deadlift it's the same freaking muscles um so it'll look like that so we're getting more specific and this is kind of based a lot off of the bulgarian method because they did it in cycles too so they would have large prep periods of high volume work to prepare them for a lot of heavy singles um and angel spazov who was the sports scientist for bulgaria at the time of their dominance and weightlifting had said that the max effort method was the only way to drive ultra high levels of performance so we took some of the Bulgarian method into our um, phase three programming there. But he also said you got to be careful because it does lead to burnout and anxiety, depression, things like that, right? Stuff you see in studies where they really push um, the participants to higher and higher levels. So that's something that's really important to keep in mind. So you got to kind of choose your spots where you really want to blast that max effort work. So then when we cycle back to phase one, there's again, less max effort work, less deadlifts. And like Louie talks about the deadlift being such an emotional lift when you miss it. And that's true. I've seen, I've seen that with some of the lifters um, at the same time. So having you know, all that max effort work and then really being able to shift back and kind of just maintaining that competitiveness with the squat and the bench, high variation. So the loads are a lot less. You don't care as much about your camera bar box squat with chains as you do your comp lift. So it allows the psychological process to kind of recover and stuff after those higher um, max effort phases and stuff. Um, but I literally structure our phases and our training plans with our variations and stuff exactly how the dynamo club for the soviet union did in the 70s um and like i said i think it's really important that we take from those and i mean they had lifters that were literally competing in multiple olympics three four olympics and meddling in that many of them so the bulgarians had fast quick success that kind of burned out over time where the russians were able to sustain it over a long period of time so i tried to take the pieces of the bulgarian method that i felt are really appropriate to developing those high levels of performance but taking a lot of the russian system and the development that they had that led to long-term success of their of their athletes i I mean uh, they had more than one that competed in four olympics and medaled in four olympics um arkady vorobayov who's somebody who i've mentioned about um the high medium and low stress training days was something that he developed so he was a high level weightlifter i believe he competed in four olympics but i think he was like 38 years old when he won his last medal and i think he's still the oldest weightlifter to um medal in the olympics i'd have to look that up again i didn't write that down before i um 
done this, but he was a high-level weightlifter who then became a sports scientist. And, you know, when they take their experience and they're able to take their experience in the science and just put stuff together, like, I think there's something to what they were doing. So there's some of the people who I've looked to in the past that we've really kind of developed our our program off of. Maybe the next one I'll talk about Vora Biov and, like, his research and stuff like that and why we do things the way that we do things um, in terms of using high, medium, and low stress um, training days. Uh, But I'm going to wrap that one up here. Uh, You know, hopefully people kind of enjoy hearing about the history a little bit, the breakdown of where it came from, and then like the practical examples that I bring to it and the perspective that I bring to it and stuff. Uh, But if anybody has any questions, just, you know, slide into my DMs like the kids do now in 2022. Um, But for now, stay strong, Boston.